Imagine a world where you own some sort of building, whether that's a grocery store, a restaurant, a factory, and you want to know how many people reside in each section of the store, or how long did the average person wait to be seated, or how long did it take the average factory worker to complete their task. Currently today, these systems are either not using AI and instead use a mix of sensors and buttons to track certain actions, or they do use AI but in a way that's highly specific to their use case and hard to easily modify for new use cases that come down the line. This is where BrainFrame comes in. BrainFrame is a tool that connects to all your on-prem cameras and lets you easily leverage AI models and business logic. Alex Thiel is the CTO of Outto, the company that makes BrainFrame, and he joins me today to talk about BrainFrame and the vision for a future where computer vision can be run by anyone. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, David. Glad to be here. Yeah, of course. So in your words, what is BrainFrame? And why did you guys decide to build this? Yeah, so uh, BrainFrame is it's a, it's a video analytics platform. So if you have a lot of existing like camera hardware, like specifically, you know, IP cameras, internet connected cameras, and you want to somehow start extracting information from it using AI, BrainFrame is a good platform for you. So it's um, we, we initially created it because of a problem that, that Outu was having internally where we were serving a lot of different customers that needed different video analytics problems solved for each other, for themselves. And they kept changing requirements on us, which was causing havoc on our on our product line because we didn't know how to best anticipate the next moves. So what we did is we created a very generic, useful for all camera processing hardware so, so uh, platform, right? We made BrainFrame, which can let you get a lot of cameras and get any type of algorithm. We've really separated how these algorithms interact. We, we can talk about that more. And then you can deploy and you get APIs giving you inference results of the, all the videos. You get you know, a SQL database that saves all the data and you get a nice uh, GUI client so you can configure things. And from what I understand, anybody that is, you know, a system integrator, someone from, you know, a more IT background, someone who might not be very familiar with computer vision could set this up, correct? Yeah, we have kind of two ideal customers. The first is a super technical algorithm developer who doesn't know how to make a video analytics pipeline. And so they can just deploy on BrainFrame. And then we have the like much less technical, but still, you know, they know a little bit of SQL. They know how technology works, system integrators. So yeah, system integrators, they can pop open BrainFrame, download it, run it, and kind of configure it with their cameras without writing a single line of code. And then the idea is once they have that hooked up, let's say for like a small store or a restaurant, then they can write a little bit of SQL and start extracting like exactly the analytics they want from their store. So if a factory were to go and say, we're not going to use BrainFrame, we love this new idea of computer vision though, and we want to, you know, figure out how long it's going to, how long does our assembly process take, you know, and how, or maybe how many units were completed, you know, something along that line of questioning. How long would it take them to build a similar system from the ground up to say, you know, we're going to look at all of our cameras and using computer vision, we're going to make and figure out analytics on, you know, what they're seeing. Like if they weren't to use BrainFrame, how long would it take? It's a really good question, especially like factories versus restaurants, because like a restaurant or a store, they're just going to, they always have hundreds of cameras. Factories might just have one station for the camera. But let's say you had a factory that had a hundred cameras and they all 
needed to be connected to the internet, right? So they would want to, first they'd have to develop the vision algorithms for let's say whatever they need to detect or find or extract using AI. Uh, then they'd have to build a video pipeline that can actually stream all those cameras, decode that video, you know, using GPU hardware, for example, so that it runs very efficiently. Run inference on that video in a nice timely manner, real time, of course. Uh, they'd probably have to write some APIs there to extract that. And they'd have to expose those APIs so they can integrate with other factory hardware. Or if you're a restaurant, you'd want to integrate with the point of sale system. Or if you're a store, you'd probably want a dashboard so that the manager can see it. So you'd have to write something there using APIs to connect technologies. Yeah, we, we estimate that that would probably be you know nine to 18 months of, of work before you actually get to solving the user's problem. But take, taking the APIs uh, aside for a second, the actual kind of, you know, secret sauce there is the way, from what I understood, is the way you guys process the video. Is that correct? It's sort of just having everything in a nice big package, right? So when you deploy on BrainFrame, right, you just kind of open up the GUI and you start connecting video streams. So you can have 100 video streams connected and or, or more, right? And But you don't have to configure anything. You don't have to think about how those video streams are being processed. You don't have to think about how the algorithms are going to be scheduled and you know run as efficiently as possible on whatever hardware you're running on. And you don't have to think about saving that data to a database and cleaning up that data over time. It's sort of a optimized for this use case uh, platform. That's very interesting. And what I like that you were mentioning earlier is these algorithms. You kind of what I've seen is they're they're talked about as capsules. Can you kind of describe a little bit more about the capsules and kind of how the, those kind of what that is really within the brain frame system? Yeah, we we love the the term capsule. So we have a system called the Open Vision Capsules format, which we open sourced under OpenCV, and uh, we can talk about that more later. But the the idea is, how do we standardize? each algorithm. So an algorithm might detect something, like it might find the bounding boxes for where a person is on a video frame or a face or a car. Then you might have another algorithm that can classify information about these bounding boxes. So is this car a Hyundai? Or or is this person wearing a safety hat? Or is this face wearing glasses? And so, you know, creating all these different algorithms and picking and choosing what features you want wasn't really an easy thing to do, but now with BrainFrame, it's literally drag and drop. So that's the use case for these capsule system. So from what I'm understanding is you can essentially drag and drop your own computer vision, computer vision pipeline, essentially, by just having these capsules. One capsule, for instance, might detect, you know, hats and, or sorry, the bounding boxes for a hat. And then another, you know, capsule that you attach to it can detect whether or not that hat is you know, a certain type of hat, and then you can detect, you can add, you know, another capsule to detect another feature on that hat. Is that, is that essentially what is happening or am I, am I not understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's exactly correct. And I think for the hat use case, you might want to go directly to detecting the exact type of hat. But really the, the reason you want to separate these things out is because oftentimes compute isn't necessarily your constraining factor. The constraining factor is how are you going to solve this problem for a customer as quickly as possible? Right. And so assembling a data set of bounding boxes of hats and their specific types might take longer than just classifying a bunch of images of hats into different bins. 
right? So you, basically by, by, let, by having this very loosey-goosey drag and drop, uh, you know, connect different data types to different type, data type system, you can actually shorten the time to production for building a new feature for a customer, a new AI feature. And what's most, I think, exceptional about this is all of this can be done with the system integrator. One person who, you know, has an IT background can simply put all of this together. Yeah, so we have uh, like an, a, a big library of existing algorithms. You know, you've got your like people, traffic, like some fun ones like mask detection, license plates. You can read text on screen. So there's a lot of features they can just they can just download it and and deploy it right and start playing with the analytics from that. But the idea is that you're not locked into this platform. You have this open source format for creating your own algorithms and deploying them. So we want people to build. IP and just deploy it on Brainframe because it'll be, it's the most convenient platform for them. So a company might say, hey, we want to build some secret sauce that that can tell you how fast a car is moving from just two frames or something. And so they could make that capsule and they don't have to make that public, but they can deploy it through Brainframe. And that's the question I also wanted to get into, which is, so a lot of these customers that have these problems, if I'm understanding correctly, they're probably not a very technically savvy business. Is that correct? Or is that a correct assumption? Yeah, I mean, you have the, the two customers I outlined earlier. You have the, the super smart, like people who are creating these algorithms. So those are the best users of the capsule system. And then you have the like less technical system integrators who just want to solve their end customer's problem, right? So the, the system integrators, you know, they know, they know how to set up, you know, all the cameras in the restaurant and how to get like an NVR set up there to record it and maybe, you know, set up the point of sale system and hopefully also know how to set up a brain frame instance, right? Yeah. But what happens for, I guess, that second uh, tier of customer that you, we were talking with the restaurants where they're not very technically savvy. What happens there when, you know, they need custom logic or they have a problem that isn't something that can be solved with the capsules that are available, and maybe they're not technically savvy enough to essentially write their own capsules. Yeah. So, so typically what we do is we go like for different verticals, right? So if it's a vertical we're interested in working in, we will develop a capsule for that company, or we'll talk to a company that's interested in making an algorithm to solve that problem. And then we will do, do the deployment. So for example, uh, an example of this happening is we've had a customer who wanted to detect safety vests and safety hats on a like factory and construction setting. And so for them, we thought, hey, that's a, that's a vertical we're interested in working with. And so the customer provided video data to us. And this is just like outdoor public data, just videos, right? And we had to figure out, okay, how do we extract like 1.3 terabytes of frames and just get, you know, maybe 500 to 10,000 images labeled so we can deploy a working, you know, safety vest detector, right? Yeah. And when you do do that, when you do extract these, these images, is there any, from what I remember with video, each image in a video is usually pretty low resolution. Does that have any kind of effect here or is that not a problem? Well, you do, you do want to train on the data you're going to be running on in production, right? So we want to train on video, the data that was extracted from videos, because in production, we're going to be using that exact data. So you, you get tremendous accuracy gains just by training on data specifically from the cameras that you might be deploying on. 
With that said, I think most machine learning models actually resize images to be even smaller than their original frame size when running inference because you actually don't need that high resolution. There are some, some exceptions to that. For example, license plate reading models require like high resolution to read the letters there. But yeah, that, that actually makes sense. I kind of want to zoom out here a little bit and talk more about doing this on-prem, which actually was one of the things I found to be very unique about this whole uh, solution. You described that a lot of this is not done in the cloud. When talking about that kind of problem right there, where you know you have maybe a restaurant or you have a institution where essentially the people in that institution are not you know, they're not very technically savvy. How do you run on-prem solutions there? How do I run on, you know, uh, maybe a system that isn't built to handle uh, a model that was trained, you know, maybe on, on five or six GPUs? Yeah, that's a good question. So to expand on that, like a very common case is we talk to retail stores who have some hardware on site because they already have, you know, maybe four cameras and they have like a small computer there that's just a network video recorder, right? And the common request there is if we can run this on-prem solution on this existing hardware, then there's zero cost, zero hardware costs to deploy on that location, which is very attractive. Uh, but usually that hardware isn't built uh, to run all this kind of algorithms. So the answer is we have to optimize really carefully on this hardware, right? And so BrainFrame does everything it can to process video on you know, either, you know, the NVIDIA GPU, if there's one, or on an Intel iGPU, if, if there's an integrated GPU. Then we, when we run uh, inference on those algorithms, we also try to target the various architectures that we can de deploy to on the, GP the GPU side, just because GPUs are much more effective processing vision algorithms than like CPUs are. Okay. And I also want to zoom in a little bit more about the computer vision process. I know earlier you spoke about that for some verticals, you guys will go ahead and train, you know, a set of models to kind of help that vertical, maybe construction sites or restaurants. What does it take to train a model from zero to one? Essentially, what do, what do you guys have to do? And kind of what are the challenges that come with that to basically say, you know, a customer says, hey, you, you know, we have this specific problem. We want to know, you know, are our employees wearing their construction hats? Like, how do you go about and, and train that? Yeah, it's been as much of a learning process for us as it has been for customers. Actually, maybe about four years ago when we were starting to do this, customers didn't have a very good idea of how AI works. And so they didn't understand how important the data collection was. But nowadays we have a, we have a very clear pipeline. So what we do is we deploy a minimum viable model. So we maybe we train a model on like, you know, some open data set kind of adjacent to whatever it is we want to detect. We deploy that on premise, and then we start recording instances whenever the model spikes. It thinks, hey, maybe, maybe I think there might be a safety hat there. So we record all those instances. And so we end up with like a terabyte of video. Then we take all that video and run it through different processes to remove any blurry frames or to try to find frames where the model thought there might have been something there. And usually it's completely incorrect. It's like 10%. Right. But at least you don't have to look at the, the video yourself. And we try to extract anywhere from 500 to 10,000 images, which isn't very much in the grand scheme of things. But because we're always going to train our models on what's called pre-trained models, that is like 
a model that's already been trained on a big data set. So it already kind of understands how to look at videos. We can use less data. And so finally, what we'll do is we'll usually have an iterative process where we where we get data from customers, label it, train a model, deploy on-prem, and then that helps get even better data through the pipeline. So now we have a better model. Now it's picking up more instances, more of the type of thing that we want to detect. So we can train on that even more. I actually want to zoom in a little bit on that beginning part because I want to just understand a little bit more there. When you said a minimum viable model, and you said you train a minimum viable model, and then you wait for it to spike for instances of a hat. Uh, let's say we're just using the hat example here. How do you go about doing that? How do you go about knowing or even you know, setting up a model and saying, hey, this model, we wanted to check for hats and you know, we're just waiting for there to be a clip where the hat is maybe most visible and it'll spike like, or maybe I'm getting that wrong, but how do you kind of set up that minimum viable model? Yeah, I mean, you know, it can be wrong most of the time as long as it's it's still like a, a weak signal towards, you know, anything is better than having a person scrub through the video basically, because you have a lot of cameras to work with. And so sometimes we train, we just have scripts that download things from like, like an image source, like let's say Google images. Other times we've actually used synthetic data. So we have a, an internal tool called Synthol where we generate like renders uh, 3D models. We use 3D models and we render out millions of different camera angles and camera resolutions and blurs of whatever it is we want to train a model for. And so the synthetic data won't get you to the production, but it'll definitely get you to like a minimum viable model. So if I'm understanding that correctly, you will train on, so you'll take maybe like hours of video and you know, you'll take a model that was trained either pre-trained or maybe it was just trained on a subset of hats. And now you're hoping that that hour of video will be shortened to like 10 minutes and maybe nine of those minutes will be incorrect, but one of those minutes will be will be a set of hats so that the person doesn't have to watch that whole hour of video to get a set of hats or hat yeah, images. Yeah, but usually we're talking about maybe seven days worth of video from 20 cameras. So many months of video that you want to bring down <laughs> to maybe just 30 minutes of, uh, of frames. Is there no risk there that you maybe lose huge chunks of the maybe the most vital hats or that you're maybe not getting a, you know, you're, you, yeah, essentially maybe you're not getting like a very clear picture of, you know, what a hat looks like because it's being biased by this very early model. Is that a fear? Or is that, is that a true problem that can happen or is, is that not? not no, something? it definitely is. Yeah, it definitely is. And that's why, that's why you want to be really careful about how you apply that model. I think it depends on how rare your, the occurrence is for this, this type of thing. Right. So like if you want to detect like people fighting in a subway or something crazy <laughs> like that, right? That doesn't happen often enough that you could even have a like a minimum viable model. You're going to have to scrub through that. Maybe you want to use like police reports or something to like try to find times and dates and then work back from there. But yeah, it re really depends on the like how rare that is. Because if if like wearing safety hats isn't rare, that's fine, right? You can you can miss half the data, but still you can start training and get one step closer. We've had instances where we have we have people human in the loop there. Like uh, there was a, a like restaurant use case. They wanted to detect something very specific on the on the food line, uh, like a certain type of food. And so they just had a human in the loop. And whenever BrainFrame didn't catch something, someone 
someone would click a button and we'd save that timestamp and get that data uh, pulled later. So you actually, a lot of the times you actually have to use like a human labeler for this. Uh, it's, it's actually just someone who worked at that restaurant who like knew to look at this like computer screen that was running BrainFrame and just, uh, you know, what, whenever a BrainFrame didn't trigger, they would trigger it for it and we would record that, uh, that timestamp. So was this person essentially just looking at a screen for like eight hours a day, just waiting for BrainFrame to kind of mess up or? No, they, they were doing their job. They were doing their job like normal and BrainFrame wasn't integrated into the rest of the systems at the time. They just knew they had to press a button when this certain like action occurred. Okay. And then, uh, yeah. And so they, 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 they just were told like, hey, can you just press this button whenever this happens in the, in the store? And they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Interesting. And then, okay. And then from there, okay. So they press a button when it happens, you guys collect it in database and then you kind of have the timestamp and then you're able to take kind of a, you're able to take kind of that frame and say, this is a frame of this thing happening. And, and then you put it in the computer vision model. Yeah. Or even the clip. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Wow. This, so this is a, this could be a very computationally intensive or long process. It sounds like it, it sounds like it's something that really can vary from, you know, use case to use case. Yes. And that's always a concern, right? It's, it's all about focusing on how do you minimize that time to model, but also can you solve these problems without training a model? So a lot of the time when a customer approaches us with a, new, a unique problem, we ask them, is there another way to do this with the existing models we already have these like 40, you know, publicly accessible capsules. And usually that's possible, but sometimes you get these big projects that might let you work in another vertical. So you, you take it anyways, because the customer is helping you with re real, real world data. Right. Yeah. And, and that's essentially one of the most key things here, right? The more real world data you have, the better your model, the better your product. Yeah, exactly. With a lot of these, these, problems that, you know, restaurants, shopping centers, factories have, what are the use cases? I guess not the use cases. What are the hacks or what are the solutions they're currently using today for, you know, the example of a restaurant wanting to know, you know, how often are people turning over or being seated? Do they have any solutions for that currently? Or is this just data they just don't have and they have to kind of estimate it whenever they do any kind of business decision? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you have a lot of people in the loop. That's for sure. For example, like in the restaurant, you know, you just have people, you have hostesses knocking down names and keeping track of things. You have, well, there's a lot of software already ex existing for restaurants. But what, what comes in useful here is with uh, the camera, you can, you have a platform now, you're, you're building on top of it. And cameras are basically the perfect sensor. They see whatever your eyes see. So anything people are doing right now, a camera might be able to do more consistently. And that becomes valuable when you have a chain of, you know, a thousand restaurants and different managers are trained slightly differently as to how they, you know, enforce, you know, these statistics that are supposed to be counted for upper management to be able to make decisions. Right. So having uh, cameras there to, to count and measure these things in a super consistent way across the chain can help the chain make better decisions as a whole. And I don't know if this would be something that could be possible. But for some of these use cases, have you guys ever come across, you know, this being done with very traditional computer vision methods? And for traditional computer vision methods, if you're not familiar, these are essentially algorithms or business logics that will describe or use math to figure out a uh, computer vision problem. So for instance, the hat problem, 
there are probably solutions that mathematically try to describe a hat or use a function to describe a hat and will be able to be a sufficient solution. Is that something that you believe, Alex, could be possible for a lot of the you know use cases you're seeing? Or is traditional computer vision, you believe, for the most part, kind of dying out and AI is essentially replacing it? Well, one nice thing about traditional CV is it doesn't have biases, right? And data sets have biases because the data you collect might have more of you know, some type of person, another type of person. You're going to have all, you're always going to have biased data sets. So I think you can never say that traditional CV is going to die out. And also traditional CV is still really pulling its weight and all kinds of other things like SAM and whatever else, right? Um, but it really depends, right? I mean, in the camera world, AI is, is killing it. It's really good at extracting useful information in a variety of environments. If you look at like a very common use case that can be solved with both traditional CV and AI is counting how many people cross a virtual line. So just want to count how many people, let's say, enter this store. Whenever they cross that entry line, you want to count it. So you can do that with traditional CV. You can look at the motion of pixels and assume there's a blob there and count people. And if the camera is really well-placed, you can do it just as accurately. But what I always think about is, well, what about the moment the customer says, hey, can we not count when an employee walks into the store? I want to count only customers. At that point, now you can't, you can't innovate, right? You can't tell if it's an employee or not. You've, you've been counting the motion of pixels. So I think there's always a space for AI. And I think it's just easier to do a lot of these things with AI nowadays. But like, you know, there's always, you know, for example, there's some some industries where you have to be able to explain how an algorithm came to a certain decision. And we're not there yet with AI explainability. So maybe that's another reason to use traditional CV. When you described that problem you just described, where the second, you know, you want to know if an employee passed through, is there a way to use both? I mean, could you, you know, use traditional CV to kind of draw that line and then use computer vision to kind of deci- decide whether or not uh, the bounding box of that employee has gone over? Or do you believe there's just no point you would just use at that point, you just kind of rip the whole system out and use, uh, you know, a computer vision model? I think for detecting people, you're better off just using AI these days. But, you know, this traditional CV has a lot of uses. We have, for example, just detecting tags. There's a, like, think like QR codes, but you can tell exact pose and distance of those tags. That's something that traditional CV can do really well, really accurately across a variety of different lighting conditions, right? So we have capsules on our website that are purely traditional CV and they work great. I find a lot of this very interesting in terms of cost. So I know a lot of, you know, a lot of articles out there, if you if you read on the internet, you'll see that the cost of AI is incredibly expensive. I think this is obviously, you know, made in part due to the chip shortage we have today. But in general, AI was always pretty expensive to train. Is this, for your guys' purposes, is this something that has been a hindrance? Uh, do you train on-prem? How do you guys kind of offset a lot of this training cost for, you said, you know, you've trained, I think, was it 30 models you said? Yeah, around, yeah, 30. 30? Yeah. So, well, we have, we've got our local machines running GPUs. We did the math event and we just decided that it was cheaper to just have machines on-prem that could do the training. 
especially because we we're not training models every day. Usually the data collection process is going to take two months and then you're going to train a model for a couple hours and maybe do, you know, 10 experiments, 20 experiments over the course of a few weeks. So it just doesn't make sense to, to pay, you know, AWS $6 an hour for a, a GPU machine when you can buy a GPU machine and use it for so much more. And that's what I, I find interesting because in, in traditional, you know, backend computing or, you know, any kind of, you know, application development, usually you start on the cloud and then when the costs become really big, you try to make a move there, you know, do we stay on cloud? Do we go back? You know, do we, do we start moving to on-prem? At least that's kind of how it is in the last uh, few years. But it, what I've heard, and I've heard this from now, multiple people who develop AI is they actually start on-prem and they're probably going to continue on-prem. Is that also what you're, what you're thinking or seeing? Yes, I think data labeling and the storage of data is best done on the cloud. There's a lot of competing companies right now who want to be the like the holder of your images with all the annotations. And uh, it makes sense to do that on the cloud because you can then send out those tasks and have you know a workforce of people label all the bounding boxes you want labeled. But on the model training side, I think it's nice having an on-prem computer with a bunch of GPUs because people overestimate how often you're training. You know, if you have a, a project, a lot of the design work data labeling is going to take the longest time. And then the final part of the project you're gonna you're gonna deploy. But GPUs are useful for everything. So having something if you have a company that's big enough on premise makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. The first thing when I first heard about this problem that you guys were going after, the first thing that came in my mind was uh, Amazon Go. I think for those who aren't familiar with that, it's a grocery store where you can essentially scan your phone to get in. You just walk up to something on the shelf, you pick up the item and walk out. And this all works, of course, because computer vision tracks your movement um, throughout the store. Do you believe, Alex, that the future of computer vision is going to be very similar to Amazon Go? Do you think maybe not necessarily just for grocery shopping, but do you think that we're going to basically live in a world where we're very free of a lot of traditional sensors or toll boots or anything that essentially, you know, requires us to be, to encounter friction whenever we purchase something or whenever we go somewhere. Do you think that can happen in the next, you know, 10, 15 years? Well, I definitely think that cameras are the perfect sensor in that they have almost any, you can extract almost anything you want from a camera if you work hard enough at it. The cost is, you know, it's just the perfect sensor, right? You can, you can, if you can see it with your eyes, a camera can tell it, right? The question is whether people are going to work in all these different verticals to make those cameras into useful sensors for whatever they want to do. The Amazon Go thing is interesting because Amazon, you, you can't convert an existing store into an Amazon Go store. You have to build it from the ground up. Basically, Amazon decided to turn their store into a robot. And they put so many sensors on the ceiling there that there's like, you know, five cameras per square foot. And they also have, you know, depth cameras, they're using infrared and whatever magic they're doing to find when you pick something up. I do think that cameras will be more useful in the, in the coming future. I guess the question is how much people want cameras everywhere, because I think there's going to be pushback from the public to add more applications that use cameras. BrainFrame is targeting places where there are already cameras and trying to just get more information out of those cameras. Yeah, it seems like there's almost this 
kind of push and pull. I mean, Amazon Go creates an almost frictionless experience, right? You walk in, you grab, and you literally go, <laughs> just like yeah. in the name. And it reduces, you know, an incredible amount of time for grocery shopping. And I'm guessing, you know, imagine if these applications were done for toll booths, you know, and imagine instead of stopping at a toll booth, you just keep going. License plate readers will, you know, grab your information and, and there's no need for, for us to stop. But kind of like you mentioned it, yeah, it, I, I could see also, you know, a future or a backlash to a lot of this with people saying, hey, you know, I don't want to be film that often, or I don't want to be have cameras, you know, in every single square foot. Yeah, definitely. I was watching Minority Report the other day and the guy walked into a store and it said like, hey, uh, it said his name, right? And I think nobody wants that world. It's just, you don't want to be recognized wherever you go. So the question is whether whether regulation will be the first one to decide, you know, oh, you, where does the line get drawn there? How much can you use a camera as a sensor? Because there are useful applications for cameras as sensors, right? Like the construction site safety is a very obvious use for that, or just counting how many people are entering or leaving a store or reducing turnover in restaurants or many, many places in a factory. But the question is, where is that line going to be drawn? We know that some municipalities have banned face recognition altogether for police use. So when will that hit the consumer market as well? Similar bans? I'm not sure. That's the question I think we're all we're all wondering is, you know, tech and privacy and kind of the the shift of what's going to go where. And I think that that's also something that, you know, a lot of people share. And one of the biggest concerns they have is that, you know, they're now always going to be watched. You know, previously, you know, we were always watched, but that had to be reconciled with the fact that I think someone had to look through hours and hours and hours of video or somebody would only see this footage if something bad happened. You know, like, let's say you have 200 cameras, either you're paying somebody to look at those 200 cameras, or only if there's a shoplifting incident or some kind of car crash, do you actually look at those 200 cameras. And it seems kind of now with computer vision, there's almost a bit of a paradigm shift, right? Because cameras that are always on can actually provide instant feedback. You know, one thing that I think is a funny example is when I worked at Home Depot, you know, I would always have to kind of log my hours. But my boss, if he wanted to know, I worked at Home Depot actually uh, right after right after high school before I went to college. And my boss would have to watch hours of video to know, you know, when did I come in? When did I leave? And, you know, whether or not, you know, I'm actually coming in at the right hours or leaving at the right hours. But now it seems like almost he could, you know, have this camera on in, in the store and he could just get a report, right, of everyone coming in and leaving. Do you think this is our new normal or do you believe that there's actually a lot more nuance on this topic? That's a really good question. I mean, it all comes back to the the thought of cameras as just sensors, right? If a camera is a sensor, then the question is, well, what other sensor would you use to solve that particular problem? So your boss could also use uh, a different sensor, your phone, right? He could just have an app. And whenever you get to work, you click a button and it just confirms that you've, you've clocked in and make sure your location is correct. And if you leave, then you know it auto clocks you out, right? And the question is, which one are people more comfortable with, right? The idea of a camera, it's like, okay, it's just a, a huge array of RGB data. If it can tell when you enter or leave, is that the same as having an app where you clock in and out? 
right? Either way, these problems, the friction is going to be lessened, but the question is how much of a role cameras play into it. And my opinion is, you know, we designed BrainFrame with this philosophy, which is that the raw data isn't isn't so bad, especially if it's anonymous. So BrainFrame, it it doesn't even record video. There's no way to record video with BrainFrame. All it is, is just a metadata extraction machine for the purpose of amalgamating like a graph of, you know, thousands of hours of footage and being able to see trends and being able to extract useful, like high level data about a location. I think that's fine. The, the question is if, you know, these technologies are used for less savory tasks, right? That's where it becomes a really big issue and we have to choose who we work with and what verticals we go into more carefully. Yeah, no, I, I can see how that, that could be definitely be something that requires a lot of, a lot of thoughtfulness. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our show. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Absolutely. Yeah.